would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom. Cron. Week in review. Listen closely. Zoom. Cron. It's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my in perspective. In the Zoom Cron. In Zoom Cron. Week, week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist, Travis. William, William Skink Matier. Hello, and welcome to another edition of ZoomCron Week in Review. I'm your host, Travis William Skink Matier, trying to get the energy up to do a solo review of the week. And this week, I'm going to be shifting, I think, into a new format. I may or may not be using this format moving forward. Um, what I am thinking is, as I want to continue building this, this idea of the brick and book media nook. My personal library continues to expand and I continue to envision different ways of, of taking the library and the contents within the library and interfacing it with the listening, reading audience of you all out there in Zoomcron land. And so this week I have a book that I'm going to be reading after I do a brief review of the headlines. And so the review part is going to be much, much shorter, and then I'm going to be reading a chapter in a book. So, at the blog, that is zoomcron.com, Z-O-O-M-C-H-R-O-N.com, you can start off the, the week with the June 12th post, The Myth of Montana's Republican Supermajority. That's right, the previous weekend, the state Republicans they were getting down and dirty in Missoula, and it was the Missoula Republican Committee that actually saw the most action. What actually happened, I'm not entirely certain. Uh, Von Dean Kopetsky is contesting the decision to ouster her. She was not ousted. It was not an ousting. So Von Dean continues to move forward like nothing happened. Uh, there are people within the Missoula Republican circles here that, that aren't all that excited about her continued leadership if results are something that we're looking at, there haven't been a lot of good results when it comes to Republicans and Missoula. So we will see what happens with that as things move forward. Continue to look for more posts on the Republican presence here in Missoula. On June 13th, we had remembering a protector who wasn't one of those dangerous Grizzlies. So Grizz, his real name was Randy, passed away. I found out about not just his passing, but a memorial that I was able to attend. I even received some of his ashes, which was quite an honor. And it was a pretty touching post. I got some really good feedback on that post in the comments section. So thank you for that. Um, go check out the memorial to Grizz if you want to know more about a person that if you just saw him on the street, you might make some assumptions. He was not a drinker. He liked to kind of pretend that he was. He did put donuts in his coffee and drink chunky coffee, which makes me kind of want to retch, but it was an endearing characteristic that his friends shared. One of many stories that, were, that was shared, and you can read more at that post. The following day, June 14th, mayoral candidate Sean Knopp's homelessness plan. Bring back the Thunderdome. 
then it's a question mark. And the question mark is a question mark because I'm not entirely sure if Sean is going to be having a homelessness plan that targets a specific piece of land to be the piece of land in which the urban camping can occur. Kind of sounds like the authorized camping site and the authorized camping site was colloquially referred to by law enforcement as the Thunderdome. That's right. Mad Max. That's a movie. I think it was the second movie in the installment, maybe the third, technically. I'm not a sci-fi nerd. I don't get into all the technical parts, but it was a Mad Max movie. Thunderdome. You go in and you, you settle your disputes in Bartertown by battling in Thunderdome. So the authorized camping site sort of resembled that, at least to law enforcement's perspective. And if a targeted piece of land were to be used, it could get back into Thunderdome territory. So we'll have to wait to hear more details and specifics on candidate Sean Knopp's homelessness plan. And that's mayoral candidate Sean Knopp. The K, it's silent. Or is it? I don't know. The following day, June 15th, the post was, can we assess recent failures to triage the near future of homeless shelter services in Missoula? Probably not one of my better posts on the homelessness topic, but man, Wednesday was interesting. Mayoral candidate Mike Nugent made a referral wanting more updates because he felt like a few other counselors felt a bit left out of the decision-making process when it comes to emergency declarations, uh, mills that will be put upon the taxpayer to generate money to reopen the Johnson Street shelter. I met a nice citizen uh, during that Wednesday, well, after the Wednesday committee hearing, who came up and spoke about neighborhood frustration in the Midtown Johnson Street shelter neighborhood. It is certain to be part of the overall hot topic of urban camping and homelessness as the summer heats up. I think 90 days is as, as quick as they can get those doors open again at Johnson Street, and more money is going to need to be sunk into that property, which the city owns, in order to get it up to code for year-round use. Money, money, money. Moving along. <laughs> Speaking of moving along, sometimes you just have to know when to move on in your position um, in many things in life. And so it's time, I believe, for United Way of Missoula to find a new executive director. I am surprised that I actually found new information in this post. I didn't realize that some of the money way back in the day when the Salcedo Drop-In Center was open, some of that money was State Department money. That was fascinating to me since there's so much interesting federal and state money that does flow into United Way, some for project-safe neighborhoods, some for other things. But this post was a urgent sort of plea for awareness that United Way, I think it's time. I think it's time that your leadership is changed, is replaced, is evolved, let's say. So that got quite a lot of attention um, in terms of views in the stats, which I can check out at ZoomCron. And then we had a bonus post, another June 16th post. Families of missing white people feel failed by the criminal justice system as well, Missoulian. And that, of course, was a response to a article about how indigenous families feel failed by the criminal justice system. Lots of people feel failed by the criminal justice system in Missoula. And that's actually part of what we're going to be talking about today. So those were the posts that you can read for the week of June 12th through the 16th, 2023. Zoomtown being, of course, Missoula, Montana. So that was the review part. Now on to the book parts. Keeping the peace. 
This is a book by Robert A. Harvey, and it's about police reform in Montana from 1889 to 1918. So why am I so eager to take this book and to open it up? This book that was put out by, oh, what press was it? Um, in 1994, this was put out by the Montana Historical Society in Helena. So the reason I am very eager to read this chapter, it's chapter six. It's about maintaining order. And the, the subtitle, Regulating Transients. Are you ready for this historical perspective on maintaining order by regulating transients? All right, let me take a sip of water and we will begin our little chapter reading for today. Ah. Okay, this starts on page 99 of Keeping the Peace. One busy week in 1909, Whitefish police gave Stephen Van Camp, a vagrant, his walking papers. J.M. Grant and Fred Diwali, two hobos, were put on a hike. Ed Port was arrested by police and given a chance to work. A lot of those were quotes. Two drunks, Patrick Martin and Sam Nelson, quote, were given a chance to sober up. Tom Hennessy, Roscoe Cornell, and Tom Bennett were kindly ordered to keep on floating down the road. Miscreants were arrested for hanging around the red light district, and one man was given 30 days for attempting to land a whiskey bottle onto the head of Officer E.T. Tiny Brooks. With extension of the transcontinental railroads across Montana and continued construction of secondary lines after the turn of the century, Large numbers of interent men rushed into these small communities looking for work on nearby farms. Agriculture was a labor-intensive enterprise, especially for the hay and wheat harvests. An average hay ranch during the harvest season required between 80 and 100 hay diggers. And interent men looking for such work were familiar figures in the six counties and seven towns under study. Many city residents wanted police to control vagrants. One editor suggested it was about time, quote, to treat vagrancy as a serious offense against the social order. As with other issues, citizens turned to the police to solve the vagrant problem. Orderly communities meant more than simply controlling vagrants. Middle-class residents also caused problems. Property owners resented regulations and controls. Many did not want to pen their animals or beautify their property, and many deemed it their right to ride bicycles on sidewalks and race their cars on Main Street in violation of city ordinances. Oh, this is hilarious. Despite their own misdeeds, many inhabitants of these small towns believe that interance, I can't pronounce that word very well, it's another word for transient, caused most of the crime and disorder. In 1895, the editor of the Dillon Examiner told his readers that the town was full of tramps, and they would, quote, soon hear of thefts and other deprivations, if not incendiary fires. He added that having too many undesirables in the city resulted in burglaries and robberies. In 1902, the editor of the Kalispell Bee warned citizens to watch their property since the cold October weather had driven many tramps into the city. The same newspaper in 1904 argued that the influx of hobos always brought a brief era of rough crimes. The Whitefish newspaper echoed the same theme when it indicated that the town was full of wary willies who caused too much crime. In Gallatin County, authorities accused tramps of setting fires and stealing property. Okay, wary willies, that's one of my favorite terms. The presence of the railroad and the nature of the agricultural economy certainly played a role in the number of wary willies who entered these communities, although interns found it transients, I'm just going to say transients, 
although transients found it more difficult to enter communities located on spur lines. Judge H.L. Myers of the 4th Judicial District in Hamilton recognized this notion when he boasted, all right, this is a long quote, off of the main line of any railroad in a prosperous and secluded nook of the mountains, Ravalli County is not in the beaten pathway of the great army of ever-restless tramp pedestrians, always surging to and fro, more or less, and particularly over the great steeled transcontinental highways connecting east and west. Ravalli County is almost entirely free from the wandering being known as the hobo. Extremely few of that class of people ever set foot within its borders, they follow the main lines of the railroad, at railroad as a rule, and as a result, Ravalli County is comparatively free from thugs, the holdup, the burglar, and the sneak thief, always following in the wake, to a greater or lesser extent, of the army of transients traveling afoot over the country. <laughs> when the Great Northern Railroad, that was the end of the quote, when the Great Northern Railroad moved its main line through Flathead County from Kalispell to Whitefish in 1901, the setting for many disturbances also moved. The Flathead County Sheriff recognized the problem and appointed a deputy for Whitefish in anticipation of, quote, a troublesome population about the time the railroad iron is spiked. Once the railroad left Kalispell, the concern over tramps in that city diminished. These seven growing communities struggled with the hobo phenomenon throughout the progressive period and attempted a variety of solutions. Law enforcement officers arrested hobos for public order crimes such as vagrancy, drunkenness, and disturbing the peace. Vagrancy was defined broadly as any person without visible means of support who had the ability to work. Moreover, any person who begged, loafed in a public place, or impeded entrance to a building was defined as a vagrant. A person could be arrested for drunkenness if found intoxicated in a public place. Disturbing the peace or disorderly conduct required that the individual disturb the peace and quiet of any street, neighborhood, family, or person by loud or unusual noise, quarrel, or provoking behavior. In most large and small communities nationwide, public order crimes represented a large percentage of police arrests. In urban centers in the West, public order crimes accounted for over 60% of all arrests. In small Montana cities, Nearly 70% of all arrests made by law enforcement officers were for public order offenses. Not surprisingly, the highest percentage of arrests for public order crimes occurred during June, July, and August. The second largest percentage occurred during the autumn months. Winters and early springs were cold, forcing vagrants and drunks into private places away from the watchful eyes of police. Occasionally, an internet a transient, was arrested in winter or found sanctuary from the cold in a warm police station. Late spring brought a resurgence of transients and an increased number of arrests. As the Dillon Tribune observed, beggars and bows with hard luck stories are beginning to spar for openings in this part of the state. Spring has surely arrived. The seasonal arrest pattern corresponded with the agricultural seasons. Many, quote, bows, that's short for hobos, came into these cities during planting season in late spring and early summer. After the harvest was completed, agricultural workers lingered in the town, spending their hard-earned money before boarding a freight train for the next city. In Glasgow, it was reported in 1915 that a large number of men returning from the harvest had entered the city. The Dillon Examiner noted that, quote, Dillon is again inundated with hordes of unemployed hay diggers who have been working during the last few weeks in the large hay-growing sections in the Centennial, Big Hole, and other well-known regions. End quote. Agricultural workers flocked to the cities for recreation after the close of the season, which explains the high percentage of arrests for public order crimes during autumn months. 
Those arrested for vagrancy, drunkenness, and disturbing the peace appeared before police magistrates. Commonly, judges fined defendants who violated public order laws. If the fine, usually set at $5, was not paid immediately, the unfortunate culprit worked it out in jail at the rate of $2.50 per day. <laughs> During the progressive period, drunks or vagrants spent an average of two and one-half days in jail to work off their fines. If it appeared that the vagrant or drunk was involved in more serious crimes, magistrates handed, off, handed out stiff jail terms. When culprits of major crimes could not be identified, police used vagrancy or disturbing the peace ordinances to hold suspects in jail for long periods of time while the case was investigated. While in jail, vagrants, drunks, and disorderly persons were not allowed to sit idle. Huh. All towns in the study required prisoners to labor on public works projects. This scheme provided the crushed rock for city streets. Many people felt it deterred unwanted travelers. The editor of the Dillon Examiner pointed out that, quote, five to 25 days in jail with good board and care only gets the average hobo in good shape to make the next town and the city alone is punished by being put to expense. Whoa, that is the Dillon editor just coming right out and saying it. And he continues, place a rock pile in a prominent place with a few hobos wearing balls and chains gathered around it and the wary willies will pass by in scorn. <laughs> Prisoners laboring on rock piles in Dillon had worn balls and chains since 1895. Other cities also used rock piles to discourage transients from dropping into town. The editor of the Kalispell Daily Interlake, for example, suggested to city fathers, quote, if those who had no visible means of support were offered a wage to work on the rock pile and those refusing were compelled to donate their service, it would probably result in immunity from that class in short order. Police chiefs throughout the West functioned as street superintendents and used prisoners from the local jail to repair sidewalks and streets. Small towns in Montana also used prisoners to pick weeds, clean ditches, chop wood, stack hay, shovel snow, <laughs> plant trees, and perform general maintenance work throughout the town. Whitefish magistrates occasionally sentenced vagrants and drunks to, quote, wrestle with the roots, equipping them with explosives. Hmm. Does that sound like a good idea? Or shovels to blow up or dig out stumps from city streets and sidewalks. In Bozeman, the editor of the Weekly Courier suggested that prisoners deal, quote, death to the rank weed by the, by the Armstrong Sith method. This captive labor force worked nine hours per day and received three meals for their efforts. City ordinances gave police the power to supervise jailed laborers, but these small departments often had no man to watch the inmates. In Dillon, the mayor appointed a special policeman to supervise prisoners working on city streets. In Miles City, Mayor George W. Farr, Farr hired John Bowling to look after inmates laboring on city work projects. He had a fearsome-looking bulldog, which he claimed was responsible for his success in keeping prisoners in line. <laughs> oh, man. Supervisors cannot always keep the working prisoners under control. Bowling's bulldog did little good when prisoners in Miles City refused to work and had to be carried back to the city jail. In 1905, an uprising by prison laborers in Dillon ended when the supervising police officer handcuffed all of them to a light pole on the corner of Bannock and Montana streets. Twelve years later, prisoners in the Dillon jail refused to work on the rock pile unless paid $4 per day. Officials offered a number of solutions to force striking municipal prisoners back to work. A reporter for the Stock Growers Journal advised authorities to spray Austro-Paris prisoners, to, to spray Austro-Paris prisoners with water. 
Not sure what that means. Which the newspaper man felt would have would have a wholesome effect. More commonly, the solution involved placing the prisoner on a, quote, hummingbird diet of bread and water. The work-or-go-hungry policy was, for the most part, embraced by citizens, and the Yellowstone Journal reported that this policy was responsible for keeping the Knights of the Road from entering town. City prisoners labored in full view of the public, and some authorities, as well as others, such as the editor of the Whitefish Pilot, argued that it was the public nature of the work that discouraged hobos from entering the city. Unfortunately, passing townsfolks subjected inmates to verbal abuse, and cities were forced to pass ordinances prohibiting harassment of working prisoners. See, now this is why we can't have nice things, people. Notwithstanding claims of the white, notwithstanding claims of the whitefish pilot, and Miles City Yellowstone Journal is doubtful that the work to starve policy of public work projects had a deterring effect on the influx of transients into the cities. Arrests of hobos for public order crimes continued throughout the period and in some cases increased during the second decade of the 20th century. Arresting, jailing, or working wary willies on public work projects were not the only methods used by authorities to control tramps. Hmm. Prior to the turn of the century, police raided hobo jungles. <laughs> hobo jungles, I'll just say that again. Rounded up the inhabitants and ran them out of town. The Miles City Police Chief gave tramps 10 minutes to leave the city. In 1894, Bozeman police announced that all, quote, boxcar tourists had to leave town by noon each day. Boxcar tourists. The Hamilton police gave hobos a choice of leaving town immediately or going to jail. After the turn of the century, law enforcement officers continued the practice of raiding hobo jungles and floating transients out of town. In 1908, the Kalispell Bee reported, tongue-in-cheek, that the police chief had formed a drumhead court-martial during which he found all the vagrants in the city guilty and ordered them to leave town. In Hamilton, the police rounded up 34 vagrants in a large dragnet. 32 men left the area and two were arrested when they crept back into town. In 1903, Kalispell authorities spent a week at the end of October rounding up vagrants, then dispatched more than 50 hobos beyond the city limits. In response to a threat by some residents to form a vigilance committee to rid themselves of tramps, the Whitefish police floated over 80 hobos in one day. <coughs> Excuse me. Police in Miles City continued to give uh, transients a set amount of time to leave town, but increased the grace period from 10 minutes to between 6 and 10 hours. See? Progressive reform. When the police found that boxcar tourists, given a long grace period, did not leave town... <laughs> They reduced the time limits to 40 minutes. Vagrants who failed to meet the deadline were arrested. Frequently, transients from Miles City simply crossed the Tongue River west of town and camped near Fort Keogh. The commanding officer at the fort assisted the Miles City authorities by forming a small detachment to keep the homeless men moving westward. The floating policy created conflicts between farmers and townsfolk. Removing too many drifters left farmers without enough labor to harvest the fields. If crops were not harvested, local communities suffered economically. Yet townspeople were unwilling to sit idle and do nothing about what they perceived as the hobo problem. Sometimes a compromise was reached in which farmers came to town and, with the help of police, recruited labor. In 1917, Dillon police rounded up a number of idle men and told them to go work at a local ranch. The men refused unless they were paid $4 per day. At that point, police indicated they would place the vagrants on a bread-and-water diet if they did not work at the ranch. More commonly, police attempted to simply control transients until harvest hiring was completed. Transients not hired were ordered from the city or, or were arrested. Some jailed vagrants found work when a farmer, unable to find laborers in the hobo jungle, visited the local jail. 
Prisoners who were recruited had their sentences suspended before accompanying the farmer. Occasionally, police were too effective in their control of transients, and farmers had to travel elsewhere to find labor. Probably not as far as, as Mexico. Transients who appeared in court frequently were ordered out of town by police magistrates. In Hamilton, Glasgow, Dillon, and Miles City, vagrants were ordered to move out, move on in 9%, 12.8%, 13.7%, and 28.5%, respectively, of the vagrancy cases. After imposing fines, magistrates suspended sentences and allowed defendants 10 minutes or longer to get out of town. Those who dared to remain in the city or return too quickly often found themselves laboring on the city streets. Transients who could not find work often went from house to house, asking for food, or stood on busy street corners soliciting money. Kindly housewives fed hungry men, and passing pedestrians often put a dime into an outstretched hand. Does that sound familiar, Missoula? Some newspaper editors shamed residents who gave handouts to beggars. The editor of the Dillon Examiner told tender-hearted housewives that feeding hobos undermined effect official efforts to rid the community of vagrants. Whose side were they on, the editor asked, the hobos or the city fathers? Other editors agreed and told their readers that, quote, the road must be as rocky as possible for beggars. Others urged the construction of more penal institutions as the method of eliminating the vagrant problem. I guess this just shows that there's really nothing new under the sun. Housewives were not the only people in these communities who viewed transients as poor un unemployed men looking for work rather than as criminals who might terrorize the community. During the Depression in the early 1890s, the editor of the Western News took issue with an editorial in the Great Falls Tribune that stated that unemployed men ought to be put to work on a rock pile. The howl of tramp, the editor of the Western News reported, hurled by well-fed, well-housed people at their, last, at their less fortunate fellow being being is becoming the taunt that will drive men to deeds of desperation and crime. The editor assured his readers that most men wanted work, but jobs were scarce. A few years later, the editor of the Whitefish Pilot defended the maligned hobo by criticizing, quote, people in the so-called Christian civilized United States who think it is a crime to be out of work. During the progressive period, charity workers wanted police to distinguish between transients looking for work and those who never labored or were ex-convicts. <laughs> Welfare services could be provided for those seeking work, while the criminal law could be vigorously enforced against the others. It was difficult, however, for police to differentiate among the various species of hobo. Oh, my God. Yes, it, that's what it says. It was difficult for police to differentiate, differentiate among the various species of hobo. Wow. One solution to the dilemma, proposed by W.H. Swindlehurst, really, I guess his name, uh, commissioner of the State Department of Labor and Industry was for cities to establish free employment bureaus within their police departments. The commissioner argued that by establishing these bureaus, police could easily separate transients looking for work from those who might prey on the community. Quote, the police department, he said, through this means has been able to ascertain at all times those who are honestly seeking employment and those who are not. And it has been found of material advantage in helping them drive out the undesirable characters that infest every community. Not all local authorities saw the wisdom of the commissioner's suggestion. The city council in Kalispell debated the concept, but ultimately defeated the proposal. Of the community studied, only Bozeman established a free employment bureau. Police experimented with other welfare measures, such as providing free lodging in their jails for individuals down on their luck. Between 1916 and 1918, Bozeman police let 471 beds to homeless men. Hmm. In Miles City, transients searched for a place to stay were put in the county pest house. Yeah, they called it a pest house. In Dillon, police gave men a blanket and sent them to the basement of the city hall to sleep. 
Charitable organizations and women's groups urge cities and law enforcement agencies to expand their welfare efforts beyond tramps. The Associated Charities in Bozeman passed out meal cards to citizens, including police, who gave them to needy persons to redeem at local restaurants. In 1909, a group of women in Miles City approached the city council with a petition requesting that some police personnel be assigned to social work. <laughs> Eight years later, another delegation of women petitioned the city council to hire a policewoman and assign her specific welfare responsibilities. None of these small communities hired an officer for welfare work. Nevertheless, law officers continued their welfare activities, including delivering coal to the poor, providing shelter for the homeless, and generally assisting the needy. Welfare advocates in these small communities persuaded police to take drunken men home and stop the practice of putting intoxicated men into jail for long periods of time. They argued that this practice only hurt the man's family. The culprit received three meals a day in jail, but his family went hungry because the breadwinner was incarcerated. That is firm logic. Instead, drunken men should be taken home or, if they had to be taken to jail, released the next morning and allowed to go to work. Law officers took local drunks home, and those they did take to jail often were released by magistrates the next morning after sobering up in order to return to their jobs immediately. Police investigated family men who did not support their children and checked on the condition of destitute families. In 1909, the mayor of Whitefish ordered police to examine allegations that able-bodied men spent too much time in saloons, leaving their families destitute. A year later, as a result of a police investigation, a destitute family in Whitefish was provided food at city expense. Wow, interesting. Welfare services such as investigating destitute families, taking drunks home, letting beds, or providing free meals were justified as a means of crime control. The establishment of a free employment bureau helped police distinguish between those transients who wanted to work and those who did not. Transients were better off sleeping in police stations than preying on citizens of the community. Giving free meals to destitute families and unemployed men was better than forcing hungry people to rob and steal. Mending family relationships was more efficient than arresting drunken fathers. And this, of course, is going out on Father's Day. Police officers also were under pressure from reform-minded citizens to make distinctions between the deserving and the underdeserving poor. Residents demanded that something be done about loafers, drunks, and vagrants. From the viewpoint of many political authorities, Loading transients out of town or sen sentencing them to the rock pile was the proper remedy. Others believed that for the deserving poor, a free bed, a hearty meal, and a job were better remedies than jail. Both approaches were rationalized as a form of crime prevention. Police responded to these concerns by arresting and referring to police magistrates an increasing number of cases involving vagrants, drunks, and disorderly people. Police also became involved in social welfare efforts to ease the burden placed on destitute individuals and families. Regardless of how police handled the transient problem, homeless men were held responsible for most crime, lawlessness, and disorder in these seven communities. Most police officers agreed with the editor of the Whitefish Pilot who wrote, quote, when the mass of them drift into any one particular locality, the peace officer is confronted by a problem of no mean proportions. End quote. Disorder was not limited to transients. After the turn of the century, reform-minded citizens urged police to continue the role of town marshals and enforce ordinances aimed at community, at community beautification, animal control, and vehicle safety. The police discovered quickly that enforcing ordinances against the middle class was more complex than floating transients out of town. And that, of course, is a setup for the next chapter, Chapter 7, 
cleaning up the city, regulating, quote, decent folks. Wow. Of course, that is um, from the turn of the century, and that's, of course, the turn of the last century. This is police reform in Montana, 1889 to 1918, called Keeping the Peace by Robert A. Harvey, put out by the Historical Society here in Montana in 1994. So I hope you enjoyed that chapter on maintaining order. It actually kind of makes me think of a movie that I watched last night. It's a movie from 1992 called Deep Cover with Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Jeff Goldblum and absolutely blew me away. This, this movie came recommended and so I spent some time closely watching this film and was really kind of shocked that that a cartel, uh, the head of the cartel named Guzman um, was actually, you know, talked about. That's a pretty common name uh, in this day and age. But Lawrence Fishburne uh, it plays a, a cop that goes under deep cover, becomes a drug dealer and quite, quite an interesting film, to, especially to watch on Father's Day weekend considering that the, the movie opens with Lawrence Fishburne as a young boy in the car and his father, a drug addict who is snorting some of that crazy cocaine in the 70s, gets out to, to go rob a liquor store and ends up getting shot and killed right in front of the young Lawrence Fishburne. So the, the movie really gets into some, some political terrain that I was surprised to see covered by a film in the early 90s. So deep cover, definitely worth watching. Um, next week, I will see if this format is something I will continue. I might read another chapter from Keeping the Peace. Um, of course, there's also, in retrospect, this book is about Mineral County. It's a history of Mineral County by Margie, Margie E. Hahn. And I have the first chapter already recorded. So I may do that next week. But stay tuned. There will be, of course, more posts at zoomcron.com. I'm your host, Travis Williams Kinkmentier. I'm sure there'll be some kind of song I will throw together for the end of this here week in review. Thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned next week. Goodbye for now. Okay, let's see if I can get my hoarse voice to, to go along with this song. <clears throat> the owl on my finger As dark as it can get Sulfur water hot It's dark from getting wet it's time i left signs a tweaker with his bat there's no missoula tweaker still my heart is sad yes it is driving fast on interstate lightning fills the sky Escape is an illusion Break the phone then cry Break the expectations Once my ring was gold Now just two eyes staring Cheaply made then sold Cheaply made then sold Necklace with the cross Coffee with no kick Headphones with the song Lighter take a hit The tarnish will rub off Pain will fade away Lord, my only goal To get through one more day 
help me with that? The owl on my finger, as dark as it can get. Sulfur water hots, it's dark from getting wet. It's time I left signs, a tweaker with his bath. There's no Missoula tweaker, still my heart is sad. Driving fast on interstate, lightning fills the sky. Escape is an illusion, break the phone and cry. Break the expectations, once my ring was cold. Now just two eyes staring. Cheaply made and then sold. Stay tuned next week. Thanks for listening. It means a lot to me.